there are people that often look at this chapter and go, man, this is just weird. I mean, Paul has spent three chapters, what are three chapters in our Bibles anyway, talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how we're to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led and how those things work themselves out in love. And then all of a sudden, he, he breaks into this incredible chapter that deals with the resurrection of Christ. And as you read this chapter, it can seem out of place unless you realize one very central fact. And one very important fact that we must lay hold of and is the essence of the gospel message. If Jesus Christ did not die and was not raised, then we are not saved. If Jesus Christ was just a man, and he was just a historical figure, and there were kind of some odd circumstances that surrounded his life, and he did some crazy things like miracles, if that's all that happened, and Jesus was not dead and in the grave, and then raised from the dead and seen, then we can all go home, because this is just a philosophy class. If we've gathered together today to talk about kind of some basic principles of living and those kinds of things, we might gain something from it. But central to Christianity is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And without it, there is no Christianity. That's what separates biblical Christianity from every other world religion. It is the gospel. The gospel message is that Jesus, God's only begotten Son, came to this earth, He lived a sinless life, He died on Calvary's cross, He was buried in the grave, and on the third day He was raised from the dead. That's the gospel. That's what you actually believe to be saved. That is the grace gift. And here's why it's important. Because your Bible says that through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and because of sin, death. The result of sin is death. The reason man today dies is because of sin. If Adam had not sinned, Adam and Eve figure it all out. They do not go to the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, and they do not eat of it, and they live sinless lives, then we would live eternally as Adam was planned to do by God. Adam, when he was born, had the capacity to live eternally. He was created in the image of God, and thereby, without sin could have lived eternally. But because he sinned, and therefore, as Romans 5 clearly says, all after him, born in sin, we now have the problem of death. Death is the curse. Death is the problem. Death is the consequence to living lives of sin. Praise God, Jesus is the answer to that. Amen? And so this morning, as I was going over my notes, we're only taking four verses. 
the power of the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father, we're here this morning because of Jesus. Lord, because you took your only begotten Son and sent him to this wretched, sin-filled earth. Lord, to be abused and broken and beaten and killed, but ultimately raised for us. And Father, we thank you for that plan. Lord, we could have never accomplished it ourselves. No amount of human goodness could have ever brought us near to you. It is by Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, his shed blood on Calvary's cross, that we've been made right, that our sins have been washed away. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, would you fill us with the Spirit? Would you draw us near to your heart? Would you remind us of your love? Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Verse 1 here in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, so now he adds this to the last three chapters. What's he been doing for three chapters? If you've been with us, it's been painful. He's been correcting the church to some degree. He's been saying, guys, you're a mess. You're blowing it. You're putting emphasis on things that ultimately aren't going to get you to heaven. Can I share with you? That nobody's going to get to heaven because you believe in creationism. Nobody's going to get to heaven because you believe in the rapture. Nobody's going to get to heaven because you worship on the Sabbath. Nobody is going to get to heaven because you're morally good. Nobody is going to get to heaven because you happen to be one of the people on this earth that can actually live a sinless life. Nobody is getting to heaven any other way than by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he says, moreover, he says, guys, let's make first things first. Let's make sure we don't miss the central point in all of this. Because if we don't get the central point of the gospel, we can get spun off on all kinds of craziness. Amen? You don't believe that. Look at the church. You have churches that are founded on completely every service has some type of prophetic message. Every service has some incidents of someone speaking in tongues. Every service has some mention of creationism. Every service has something that is pointed to that's other than the gospel. And it's the gospel that saves. It's not creationism that saves. It's not a prophetic worldview that saves. It's the gospel that saves. And so Paul is saying... Make sure you don't lose the gospel in every other thing you do. Now, did I just say those other things are not important? I surely did not. They have a place, and each of them in their own place is important, but they are not a substitute for the gospel message. And so he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you which you also received, and in which you stand. No one will ever stand before a holy God without the gospel. No one. That's why Christians are viewed as exclusive. That's why we're considered narrow-minded. No one stands before a holy God without the gospel. If Jesus did not die for your sin, and if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then you will Die for your own sin, and you will not be raised from the dead. It's that simple. That's the message of the gospel. 
by which, notice this, you are saved. It's extremely plain. No gospel, no salvation. For if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Where did Paul receive the gospel message? You all know. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's going to kill Christians. He's breathing threats and murders against the children of God. He says, you know what? I'm going to go kill as many as I can because they are whack. They're taking away my Judaism. I'm after them. And the Lord God himself speaks to the Apostle Paul. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul of Tarsus met Jesus the Christ on the road to Damascus and believed the gospel message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Circle that, underline it, because it will be the focus of the remainder of the study. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Twice. According to the scriptures. Twice, Paul says, you knew these things would happen. Twice, Paul says, this isn't the first you've heard of this. What he's saying is, this was all predicted as it would happen, and it was done in advance. He's drawing attention that the gospel message wasn't some new revelation. And in fact, the gospel message is found throughout the Old Testament. The gospel message is contained in the Old Testament of your Bible, not just the New. And it's described in detail, because in the Old Testament is the life of the Messiah. And it's spoken well ahead of his arrival here on earth. Sometimes people ask me, well, you're kind of stuck on this whole gospel thing. Yes, I'm stuck on the gospel thing. And here's why. Because there is, there is no ancient fact of history that has more validation and documentation than the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the central fact of human history. So much so that our calendars are dated by whether it was before Christ or after Christ. It's an uncontested fact. And in fact, it is so uncontested that as people argue and bicker over it, what they come back to is they can't deal with the fact that Jesus Christ was a historical figure, that he walked on this earth, that he was killed on a cross in Jerusalem, that he was buried in the grave, and that he was raised from the dead. So much so that great men like Simon Greenleaf, the founder of the Harvard School of Law, in an attempt to disprove the resurrection of Christ, researched for several years all of the facts around Christ and wrote a book called The Testimony of the Witnesses. Those witnesses were eyewitness to the, 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 the accounts of Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And for that, most of them then surrendered their own lives for that testimony. And it was after that amount of study that Simon Greenleaf said, you know what? I can't disprove it. It's true. 
the evidence itself is so overwhelming that I have no choice but to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And he himself becomes saved. That book is still used in law schools today. You see, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about something that is not just powerful unto salvation, but it is powerful truth to the world that we live in. It's not some weird Christian thing. It is a fact of history. And because it's a fact of history, and because according to the Scriptures, we knew what was going to happen well in advance. You all know the story of the shepherd who threw the rock into the cave at Qumran in the 1940s. Breaking the sound, the sound of broken shards of pottery were what he heard. And investigating those things, we came upon the Dead Sea Scrolls. In that collection of scrolls exists every single book of the Old Testament save the book of Ruth. Every one of them. All dated well in advance of the writing of the New Testament. So when we talk about the Word of God, we now have evidence that those books were all written prior to the life of Christ. Every one of them. The book of Isaiah that stands in the shrine of the book in, in Jerusalem to this day. You can go view it. It's a 53-foot-long scroll of the book of Isaiah dated to 192 B.C. In the book of Isaiah alone exist over 30 prophetic windows into the life of Christ. According to the Scriptures, we knew they knew, God spoke in advance that Jesus Christ would be murdered, that he would be buried, and that he would be resurrected. It's central to your salvation. And it's not some freakish thing that we as Christians just go, whoa, we just believe it. It was foretold in advance. Romans chapter 5 says, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, very plain what Paul said as he wrote to the Roman Christians. He says, death came through sin, and thus death separated and spread to all men because all sinned. Every last person born from Adam to now is born a sinner. We're sinners. Saved by grace. We're not perfect and identified. We're sinners saved by grace. I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm still a sinner. I'm a saved sinner. That's a whole lot better than a dead in your trespasses and sins sinner, which is what I used to be. But now I'm a saved sinner. Paul would go on there in Romans chapter 5, and I encourage you to read it. Verse 17, it says, For if by the one man's offense death reigns through the one, in other words, because we're all related to Adam, every last one of you is going to die. Period. The question then becomes, what happens after you die? Amen? Because if your Bible is correct, which I believe it is, there is something after you take your last breath. And according to your Bible, there's exactly two places you can end up. And one is not good. 
And if your Bible says that through one man, everybody ends up a sinner, I hope there's a solution to the problem, amen? Because you're all going to die. We're all going to die. How much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Notice it doesn't say everybody does. It says those who do. Because not everybody believes the gospel. The gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness is the restored state back to eternal life in the presence of God. You see, that's what we gain in Christ Jesus. And so Paul basically is attacking some very bad theology, much like we have in our world today. People want to believe, to some degree, I think all of us want to believe that at the end everybody gets saved. Amen? I don't know about you. To me, that sounds like a wonderful thing. It's just like, okay, well, we kind of all haggle on this earth, and the Muslims believe one way, and the Hindus believe another, and there's karma and shmarma and dharma, and everybody believes those kind of things, and ultimately God sorts it all out in heaven, and everybody gets saved. Your Bible doesn't say that. Your Bible says to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And that's it. There's not another option. There isn't another way. And to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ means something very specific. It means that what God said about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, is what you believe. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That he would ultimately be killed on a cross. That, by the way, was told us 1,000 years before crucifixion even existed. You see, what we know about Jesus as the Messiah is testimony to the truth of the events. And so as we look at this passage and break it down, as John Stott wisely said, he says, the Gospels do not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the Gospels. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. You see, bad theology was tearing that church apart, and it tears the church apart today. Because if you come up with some other method of salvation, some other way to get there, then you have taken the gospel message, which is Christ died and was buried and raised again, and you've made it something else. You've made it, maybe you made it about tongues. Maybe you made it about rightly dividing when uh, the Gog-Magog battle would occur. Maybe you've made it about simply being morally good, or maybe philanthropy, or perhaps seeking a cure for AIDS. And by the way, all of those things are good. We should endeavor to make this world a better place but endeavoring to make the world a better place saves no one without the gospel. That's why those things should be a platform for the gospel message, not just the things. And so if we're going to seek a cure for AIDS, let's tell them about Jesus while we're doing that. Amen? If we're going to try and go out and help people in a situation where their house has been destroyed by a hurricane... Don't just fix their house, fix their house and tell them about Jesus, amen? Because it's Jesus that saves. 
The real problem is you're going to die one day. That's the real issue, amen? That's the real issue. One day, you're all going to stand before your maker. It's what your Bible says. It's what the testimony of the witnesses proved. You see, as we look at this, you'll notice something, three points that you can just jot down. Number one, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. Christ did not die for his sins. He died for your sins, my sins, according to the Scripture. You see, that's key. Because if you don't get that, then you don't recognize you're a sinner. If you don't recognize you're a sinner, you won't have a Savior. He died for your sins. As wonderful as you may be, as awesome as you probably are, you're still a sinner. you got some issues, okay, according to God's righteousness. Can't be solved by you. They were solved by Jesus. Second thing, that he was buried. Why is that important? Because it proved he was dead. If Jesus was just simply taken out someplace, maybe he wasn't dead on the cross. But you take someone who's been so mortally wounded as Jesus was on the cross. He was beaten. He was flogged. Crown of thorns pressed upon his head. He was then forced to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. He was then spit on. He was abused. He was castigated. He had a spear thrust in his side. He was nailed to the cross. And a Roman professional executioner didn't break his legs because he said he's dead. There's no reason. We don't need to break his legs. He is not breathing. But just to put an exclamation point in history, God the Father, from the beginning of time, writing through the prophet David, in the 16th Psalm, said, You shall not leave my soul in Sheol. He said, this guy's going to rise. The Messiah's going to raise again. You've got to prove he's dead. So what do you do to prove he's dead? Take a mortally wounded man. Let's say he's not dead. What do you think happens if you stuff him in a hole in the ground for three days? If he wasn't dead at the cross, he's surely dead now. Then you push a couple tons stone in front of his grave, and you put some Roman guards next to it to make sure nobody gets in there to mess him up. Ah, you're not com- No EMTs got inside the tomb, okay? Didn't get an IV. He wasn't shocked back to life. He was dead. The second thing, he was buried. The third thing, and of course the most important thing, he was raised according to the Scriptures. Your Bible says that the Messiah would be raised. And to do that, we now find he was seen by Peter. Do you not think that Peter would have known the Lord if he'd have seen him? And it's going to go on, and we'll cover the rest of this at the beginning of the study next week. But here's the important thing. Eyewitness accounts of Jesus being raised from the dead are in number, so much so that found in this passage of Scripture we'll see next time that there were 501 group that saw him. And those who saw him then took that testimony and for the rest of their days said, I'm willing to die for that testimony. Now, how important is that? There's a lot of things that you believe. You know what? I believe that there are stars in the sky. 
I do. I believe there are stars up there. I don't think they're little pinpricks as the ancients believed in the fabric of space. I think they're actually gigantic balls of gas that are on fire. Okay, I believe that. But I've never been there. But I'll tell you this. Someone comes and says, Jeff, are you willing to die for the belief in stars? I'm saying, nope. Ain't going to do it. Haven't been there. You know, the sun's nice and warm. That one I'm going to give you, but the rest of them, not so sure. These people all gave their lives for the testimony that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died, he was buried in the grave, and he was raised from the dead. And consequently, they all said, you can kill me, I'm not denying those things. Pretty powerful witness. And then it would turn into millions of people dying the same death for the same reason. That is either the world's most powerful mass hallucination or it's the truth. Amen? I don't believe it was a mass hallucination. These were eyewitnesses to the events who wandered around Judea and Jerusalem and said, I saw him. He's alive. Why is that important? Because your passage in your Bible says this, according to the Scriptures. According to it being said in advance that that would happen. And I want to spend just the next few minutes giving you a little insight into how important that is for you. Because if you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died on Calvary's cross, He was buried in the grave, and He was raised from the dead, you believe in one of the greatest historical facts in history. And here's why I say that. It's purely the law of probability, statistics, and mathematics. When you look at the events that are in Scripture, it says, according to the Scriptures. Let me tell you what that is. Most of you know that I've taught a Bible college class called Christ and Prophecy. There are no less than 456 specific things about Jesus the Messiah in the Old Testament. Many of them you know, that he'd be born of a virgin, uh, that he would be born in Bethlehem. You see, there are all of those things that when you look at it, go, wow, that, you know, one or two of them, you're going, ah, maybe coincidence. But when you look at mathematical probability, and I've drawn from the works of Dr. John Ankerberg, Dr. John Weldon, Dr. Walter Kaiser, Dr. Peter Stoner, all of these guys are much smarter than I am. Dr. Stoner is a professor emeritus of mathematics and science at Westmont University. And we're going to draw from some of his studies. But when you look at the things that are declared in your Bible, how tough do you think it would be mathematically uh, to, you know, to guess maybe a city that a president's going to be born in? Probably most of you would go, eh, well, that's kind of not, you know, all right, you might be able to guess that. You might be able to do something along those lines. It could be possible for you to figure those types of things out. We think about, you know, the, the things that we know in this world. We know them in what's called the probability of them happening. I have here a silver dollar. You guys have probably seen them. This is one of those Eisenhower ones. They weigh like 12 pounds. You can kill somebody with them. Very heavy. But this is, this is one of those, you know, this one happens to have, remember the moon landing dollar? I have one. That's a silver dollar. It's about five thirty seconds of an inch thick. It's about 
uh, inches across, not quite two full inches across. Not very big. It has on one side what we call the heads, the other side the tails. And you guys all know that there's a 50-50 possibility of me doing that, it coming up one or the other, right? It's 50-50. If I was to tell you right now, I have a loaded gun, I pull it out of my pulpit, I ask you to come up here, 50-50 probability, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Oh, you're, most of you are not going to take a 50-50 probability guessing your life, Amen. You're not going to do it. You're looking for a 100% probability. Amen? Keep that in mind for a few minutes. The more events you string together, the greater the probability is that they will not come true. So the more of them you link, and the more complex those things are, the harder it gets to fulfill it. And here's why. Those 456 prophetic windows in the Old Testament start to get compounded in such a way that it's mind-bogglingly staggering as to the probability they could ever come to pass. Even if you knew what they were in advance, which they didn't. Nobody owned Bibles. What do you think the probabilities are that Micah could have predicted uh, 700 years uh, before the, the the Messiah came, the, the future birth of that person. What do you think it is that David in Psalm 22 uh, could have prophesied a method of execution that didn't even exist? What do you think it would have been that the specific date that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem could be predicted by Daniel the prophet almost 600 years before he did it? You start adding those together. Let me give you just some basic statistics here. Just just on Daniel's prophecy alone, if you started to look at those things, you're just going, these are, these are crazy, these are insane. Random cities throughout all of the eastern world at the time, being named by name, specific governors and people who would make decrees, all of these things together are staggering. If you took one of them, they're kind of hard. Remember the 50-50 proposition? Start extrapolating those things out times the number of people that were born in that given region at that time. If you take 25 of those predictions, okay, that's only 5% of them, by the way. Just lock that in your head. I don't want to bum you with mathematics, but I think you're going to get the picture. Take 25 of those predictions and you apply them to a single person. And notice what some of those are, and I'll give you some of them. How does someone arrange to have a specific set of parents by a specific lineage be their parents? How does one arrange to be born of a virgin? How does one arrange to be called a prophet who is like Moses? How does one arrange his own death by a method of of death that wasn't even known at the time? How does one arrange to be between two criminals at his death? How does one arrange to have somebody gamble for his clothing at his death? How does one arrange to have a messenger come before him and preach the same message about him? How does one arrange to have 30 pieces of silver, the exact number of the Messiah's price for his death how do you arrange to have somebody do that who doesn't like you how, how do you arrange to have a specific practice of breaking someone's legs or piercing their side some 500 years before it's actually used as a roman form of execution as you look at these things you can see that you can't arrange to get them done it's not possible 
And when you start to look at these things, and you start to link them together and realize how many people existed, and you begin to compute the mathematics behind them, they are staggering odds. They are mathematically impossible. Dr. Emil Boré wrote a, a very seminal work on statistics. And in writing that, he concluded that anything whose probability is 10 to the 50th power or greater is mathematically impossible. It just simply won't ever happen. That, by the way, is the reason that I don't believe in evolution. It is mathematically impossible for chemicals to arrange themselves, store information, and then turn into anything. That's why I don't believe it. I don't believe in evolution based on the mathematics. It doesn't work. Dr. Peter Stoner, whom I mentioned to you, began to take these things, and he's presented this work, by the way, to the Committee of the American Scientific Affiliation for peer review. In reviewing it, they said there's no statistical fault in the analysis. He used 600 students to take the data based on 25 of the predictions. They only made it through eight of them, okay? So just Micah's prediction in Micah 5.2, where it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, they took that one. The chance of one man born at that time, in that day and age, being born in Bethlehem, was computed out to be one in about 300,000. Now you've got to throw in all the rest of them, and statistically, they multiply. The probability of one is multiplied times the probability of the other. In other words, they increase in their magnitude of impossibility is the way for you to look at it. According to the scriptures, keep that number, 456. Realize we're only dealing with now about eight of them. Ultimately, if you just took those eight, that's why I brought this. You multiply those eight out times their probability, and they did tremendous work on this. Remember, this is 600 students guided by the faculty running the mathematics. They came up with the probability of one person fulfilling even eight of the most prominent messianic prophecies was the equivalent of 10 followed by 17 zeros. Now, our government doesn't seem to understand what 10 followed by a bunch of zeros is, but I do. It is a big number. It's beyond quintillions. That's all you need to know. Write down 10 with 17 zeros on it if you want to, and you can look at it and go, wow, that's a lot of zeros. This is a half, this is a dollar. This is what was used. They had computed the mass of this dollar and said it would be the equivalent of covering the state of Texas two feet deep, painting one of these red, blindfolding a person, dropping them in Texas, allowing them to wander as long as they want, reaching down, and on the first pull, pull up the one silver dollar that was painted red in the entire state of Texas. Okay, that's just eight. There are 456. What happens when you start to include some of the other prophetic things? The numbers become so huge, they are unfathomable. If you took, they did one more larger study, that they took 48 of the most significant prophecies about the Messiah. We now have a little better than 10% of the total number, family of God. 10% of the total number. By the time they ran the math out on those, they came up with a number that's 10 to the 157th power. To give you an idea of what that is, you all know electrons are relatively small. Amen? Everybody know that? Electrons very small, smaller than atoms or a component. You need an electron microscope to be able to see an electron. They're very tiny. 
to give you an idea of how long, if you took an inch worth of electrons, that's about this much, and you lined them up from end to end, and you could count them, four of them for every second, to measure the number of electrons in one inch would take you 19 million years. That's a long time. Why am I telling you this? When you take 10 to the 157th, and you start talking about the probability, it is well past the 10 to the 50th that is considered impossible. When you blow it up, this is how big it is. To give you an idea of the size, if you, if you just took a ball of electrons that represents about one-sixth of that number, it would take up the space of the known universe if the electrons had no space between them. It's larger than the known universe. That's just for 48. Now take a spaceship instead of a guy in Texas, and you send him anywhere into the known universe, and he's got an electron microscope, and you've painted one of the electrons red, and you say you can go anywhere in the known universe, and he flies around, and he stops somewhere, and he takes out his electron microscope, and he doesn't get to look. He says it's right there, and you have to look, and the one electron is painted red. You're still well short of 48 prophetic windows being fulfilled in the life of one man and that guy being Jesus. That's only a tenth of them. How much more so do you think it would take you to reach the actual number? It's insane. It's the type of mathematics that no one can compute. There's not a capability that we have mathematically to even understand what the odds are of one man from your Bible according to the Scriptures. Not the New Testament, the Old Testament. The Old Testament that we have original documents that were written before Jesus landed on this earth from heaven. And in those Old Testament documents, it says that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. It says that he will be crucified. It says he will be crucified between two thieves. You get the picture? So when you're talking about the reality and the power of the resurrection, it's beyond imagining that it could happen any other way than a God in heaven imprinted that information into his word and gave it to us so that when Jesus got here, we'd go, that's the Messiah. That's why we believe what we believe. Your faith is reasonable. Your faith is not absent your mind. Matter of fact, if you're a thinker, you're going to come to the conclusion that I don't want to die by the flip of a coin. There's a way to avoid that. His name is Jesus the Christ. And he was put to death so you wouldn't have to die. And he was raised so that you could live. I'm going to have the elders begin to pass out communion. That is the central fact of the Christian faith. And and as we think on those things, when somebody comes to you and says, your faith is crazy, you can say, no, my faith is very reasonable. You take them to the Old Testament, 
You don't have to take them to the New. Take them to the book of Isaiah. Take them specifically to Isaiah 52 and 53. Those two chapters alone blow mathematics out of the water. They were written in 686 B.C., almost 700 years before the Messiah set foot on earth. Our God is real. It's more real than this coin. And as we think about what Jesus did on the cross, what you will hold in your hands represents his shed blood and his broken body. Both of those things happened to defeat death. Amen? That's what happened with the cross. Adam blew it. Jesus fixed it. Adam messed it up. Jesus made it possible for us to get it back. That's why Paul takes this time to say, Hey, guys, don't miss it here. It's the resurrection. It's the reality of it that says that, you know, one day where he is, I'm going to be also. That when I take my last breath, I'm not stepping into some timeless existence. I'm surely not stepping into nothing. I'm not just going to vanish. I am not just the atoms and molecules and cells and systems that make up the physical Jeff. There is a part of me and a part of every human being that is eternal. The question remains, where will that soul that's the real you spend eternity? You don't want to determine that by a flip of a coin. My Bible says that Jesus Christ defeated death according to the Scriptures. My Bible says that he was raised in eternal life according to the Scriptures. So it is my surety that as I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that I'm one day going to stand before a holy God who loves me and bought me and paid for my salvation with the price of his own son's broken body and shed blood. And we're going to hold the elements of communion and we're going to worship the Lord and then we'll pray and partake. But what you hold in your hand, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He went to the cross. He died to defeat death. He went to the cross and died and was buried to give you eternal life in heaven instead of hell. Don't miss that. Let's worship the Lord and then we'll pray. How took the bread and you broke it and he said take eat for this is my body which is broken for you let's partake of the bread
And after supper, he took the cup and he drank from it. He supped from it. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. Let's partake. Let's thank him. Lord Jesus, as we think on the price that was paid, the debt that was erased, the love that was poured out, the sacrifice, the reward. Lord, what it meant for you to give your life for us. What can we say? What could we do? Lord, we simply bow in thanks. We tell you from our hearts that, God, we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you that we were told what it would look like in advance. We thank you that as we think on the cross and we think on the grave and we think on the resurrection, that if Job declared, we declare that one day we will stand on this earth and see you face to face. Because you are raised, because you defeated death, so will we who have put our trust in you. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. It's in these things that we say to Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's worship our King.